0: What does the word intentional mean to you?
1: I think we talk about being successful on purpose instead of by accident. And so I think like intentional is kind of it means the same thing. It's being, you know, not kind of letting things happen to you, but making, you know, using all the information you can as well as just your good common sense and judgment to to make decisions to get you kind of to wherever you want to go.
2: Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies.
0: Thank you so much for tuning back in. I am super excited for today's interview. But before we jump in, we have a couple updates. Again, this show is on YouTube if you want to go check it out. The second update is that we have an intentional growth training virtual cohort coming up. So if you've not caught that in the past, so we have the training program, which is a thousand bucks. You can do it yourself online out of the 300 and some people that have gone through it in the last 24 months. Only a handful have done that and only one completed it the uh, big huge gravitational pull is towards accountability calls one-on-one with myself or as a group, and we've got one coming out where it, the kickoff is on May 4th, and there are four calls over four weeks. It's the 4th, the 11th, the 18th, and the 25th. It is 2000 bucks, and it is with a maximum of 10 entrepreneurs who want to go through the training in between the calls, and they jump on, and me, my partners Matt and Pat are going to be facilitating the Q&A and the discussions once a week. So get, go check that out at Arcona.io. It is on the homepage. And then the third update is we have an intentional growth financial assessment that you can access as well as on the uh, website where it's 22 questions and you're, you answer these questions. You don't need your financials. And the entire point is to answer them based on what good looks like from Pat and all of our CFOs, managing private equity firms, managing ESOPs with long-term value creation and the value of the business in mind. So we help you understand how to organize the financials so you can truly see years out the value of your business, your distributions, your taxes, your growth rate, and all your strategies and the impact of those strategies. Go check it out at arcona.io. So... On to this interview and Trish and and her background. I had so much fun talking to Trish. She and her partners uh, have just made some huge splashes over the last six years. They quit their jobs in, I'm going to call it the belly of the beast of finance, from currency trading to... Uh, Hedge fund work and all the different things that uh, they went to school to be financiers, they decided to jump into the private equity space and, and truly owning small businesses. So Trish and her partners have built this entire structure, which we completely unpack on how they have long term the entire long-term horizon, because there's not a fund that they created. They don't have a specific date that they need to buy and sell and give a return to. They've she walks and breaks down her entire structure of how they organized it, how they've bought 31 companies in six years, and how they're getting the, and placing executives onto these uh, companies. That she talks about boring companies, but boring meaning that it's the real economy, the backbone of the the biz, of the economy, which a lot of The listeners in here and a lot of us manage and that have good cash flow. And she talks about how she and her uh, company, ChenMark, can be a fit for people that want to retire and have legacy in mind. And her and I talk about how the principle one and two of the Intentional Growth principles can uh, give insight on why someone would want to reach out to her to sell to her compared to a different private equity firm or an ESOP just I think it's a blast because it just shows that the the this segment of the market where there needs to be people that are buying companies that have conscious capitalism kind of at, at the heart but can pay fair market value and really try to align a lot of data points that I think a lot of people think are not able to be met at the same time, like getting all your money up front, walking away and taking care of your people. Um, I just think it's a great uh, example of how people are out there making things happen. And uh, Trish at Chenmark and her partners are doing that. So I really hope you enjoy this interview with Trish. And without further ado, I will let Trish take
2: it away. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Trish, how are you?
1: I'm good. Excited to be here today.
0: Yeah, and wh- where's here? Come on, we just got to do this for the audience. I
1: am <laughs> currently in a car outside of our CrossFit gym. Very glamorous settings.
0: I mean, come on, you're you're, you're <laughs> in the process of going through uh, and prepping for a competition, so I'm not going to interrupt your your goals and your ambitions. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah. So this is called devotion right here. And I'm very appreciative that you're willing to do this even while you're in the practice and uh, of your competition. So for the listeners that are not familiar with you and your background, I I was very intrigued because you guys have a completely different setup and of like how you guys are buying companies and what you're doing with them and where you guys came from. And uh, I think it's, I'm very excited to to peel that apart for everybody. So just from the top, kind of, you can do the flyby and then we'll unpack the different parts.
1: Sure. Sounds good. So um, I started a firm called Chedmark uh, in 2015 with my husband, James, and my brother-in-law, Palmer, um, which is like a bit of a weird group to start a company together. (laughs) Uh, But it works for us. um, And at this point, we really wouldn't have it any other way. Um, And uh, we all had sort of a, a background in traditional finance. And after we sort of had like a maybe like a late twenties crisis, um, about, um, you know, you go to, you know, we're all pretty driven people. We went to like good schools and had good jobs. And at a certain point we were like, okay, but is this what we're going to actually do for the rest of our lives? Like, is this well, it?
0: Unpack that a little bit true Trish, because yeah. like it was the traditional, like what a lot of people think about earning the buku bucks and the finance route. I mean, I think you guys, yep. it, it's pretty important. Like what was, lend- why did you guys have that 20 midlife midlife twenties crisis?
1: Well, I think it happens to a lot of people. It happens to a lot of people that we're actually, you know, recruit right now is that, you know, I, I'll speak to my experience. You know, I went into finance right out of college in New York city, you know, kind of, um, live almost like a Tom Wolf novel in a way. Um, and it worked incredibly hard, you know, made good money and, and learned a ton. And, you know, it was a really great experience for a couple of years, out, you know, right out of college. Then I went to business school and then I went back into finance because it just was kind of like, I was just like, almost like unaware that there was a larger world out there.
0: And what, what is finance? So when you say finance for the yeah. listeners, what does that mean?
1: So a lot of different flavors of finance. So for <laughs> myself, I was sort of randomly recruited out of college by a professor who was also a hedge fund manager. So I was an analyst at a macro hedge fund. And so the hedge fund was making, you know, bets on interest rates and sovereign debt rates and, <laughs> you know, emerging markets and shipping rates and like really anything. You know, if there was a, an interesting idea that was out there, like it would be like go you know, find out what's going on with the Baltic Dry Index, which is like the shipping index. Um, like what's the drivers, and um, like get, you know, talk to people, come up with an opinion. Like that was my job essentially for a couple of years. And it was super interesting, incredible. You know, James was a currency trader and Palmer was an equity research analyst.
2: So <laughs> quite we the great like, team.
1: <laughs> yeah. And we weren't even really like in the part of finance where we were like, value like we weren't in private equity we were not investment bankers we were in like a more of like the trading part of finance which you know it it, is i think i've met in a lot of incredibly hardworking people in that space and a lot of just really really smart people go into that space because it's a very intellectually challenging space Mm -hmm. and so like it was an incredible life experience and i went back to business school just to kind of round out my education a little bit because the fund I worked at um, was relatively small in terms of number of people. So I never really had like any like quote unquote like corporate training or management training or like mm-hmm. any of that sort of stuff. And I was always kind of like interested in like the business side of things, um, not uh, like, not just the trading, like investment side of things. How do Um, people
0: actually run a business that makes money, right? (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. And so I thought that was interesting. So I just kind of wanted to like broaden my horizons a little bit. Seemed like a good kind of time to make a change. And then I, but I went back into finance to a different type of firm. It was like quantitative, quantitative asset management fund called AQR. And I learned a ton there as well, but still in the more finance side of things. And And it was about like one year after business school where, you know, we were living in like the New York suburbs and we bought a house and it was, and then I kind of looked around and I was like, I don't want to do this for like the next 20 or 30 years. Like, this is not like what I want to do. And, and I, I had the privilege of interacting with a lot of very successful people who had started their own investment funds. And I like always thought like I want to be those people. Like I don't want to be like the junior person reporting them. Like I want to be that guy. And I think there's also a layer of like when you actually get to know some really successful people, you're like, oh well this person isn't like, you know,
0: they're not a That's, god. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right? Like they're
1: a normal person, just like everyone else. And they make mistakes, and they've got you know some incredible gifts, and they also have you know flaws, and they become real to you and and to me. That was actually quite motivational because I was like, well, you know, I could probably do some of what they did. And uh, the one thing I will just flipping forward, the, the first thing I realized as soon as we actually became business owners is that being a boss is a lot is a lot harder than it looks. <laughs>
0: um like, <laughs> it's not just all like, rainbows and unicorns and that's just top of mind yeah, of my kids. You
1: know, like, being it like the number two is like very easy or like a junior person because you're like oh well like it's very easy like criticize the decision someone's making or like think that like they're not paying attention or they're disengaged or whatever and then when you're actually in the seat you're like oh well that person was dealing with like 100 other things i was unaware of and like whatever i thought the decision was like it was probably competing against some other thing and they were choosing between two difficult you know roads and i only saw like a very small sliver of what was going on and i also was never the person to actually make the decision and it's a lot harder to do mm-hmm. um so i now have a lot more respect for my old <laughs> bosses because i realized like they're actually doing like the best job that they could so anyways we started kind of being like yeah, you know, and we we're all basically having the same situation, you know, same experience. Like, is this really what, like, we're gonna do? And all of us were like, it just didn't sit well. And so we started looking around at the time, just for kind of like side hustles, like kind of like interesting investment DCs that were kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, a little different. And we had. There was one like random newsletter that we'd read that talked about how like car washes and laundromats and like those sorts of just like boring businesses would be like re- they that, that, that had steady cash flow would be really good in a low re- interest rate environment. And we're and so that was always something that was like, okay, maybe we could buy like a car wash or a laundromat or like one of those types of businesses. Um, and then Palmer had actually left his job and was working at this sort of smaller education company and he had thought, okay, well, we sort of had like conversations about, uh, you know, oh, well maybe like, you know, if the owner wanted to leave, like we could buy, you could buy that company out or something like that. And it kind of was, I I talked to a lot of people who like, will call me up and be like, here is my grand strategy plan for how I'm going to create this like holding company of small businesses. And I'm like, that sounds cool. That was not our experience. Really. We basically were like, you know, it took us like a year of kind of like tossing around the idea and having it evolve naturally. And it was sort of a like, okay, well, like, let's Google, like, how do you buy a business? And then like things came up and then like we found some small business brokers, just start calling them and being like, I don't know, tell me about this business. And like, we learned everything kind of like incrementally and every, the more we learned about the sort of small business ownership space the more excited we got about it and like the more confidence we had to be like hey this is actually something we want to do so and i remember very clearly september of 2014 i remember because we were talking to james's parents and we were like this is this we this is what we want to do we want to buy there, there's a ton of businesses out there that have retiring owners that just are basic, boring businesses that are going to be around, like kind of backbone of the economy type businesses and they have steady cash flow. We can buy them, you know, I think at fair valuations, not nothing crazy. We can be long-term owners and we want to build a portfolio of these cash flowing businesses. And we want to use the cash flows that we generate from one business to buy the next business. And that was essentially our like idea after like kind of, a while toying around with it.
0: Didn't you say you get one you went back to in our conversation, you said you went back to your business school that you didn't, because now in some of the schools, yeah. you're actually teaching acquisition through entrepreneur, or entrepreneur through yes. acquisition and stuff, but you didn't even take any of those classes, right? You went back and started like asking some questions or something.
1: Yeah, no, I was like, like I, I kind of definitely wasted <laughs> some opportunities in business school <laughs> because when I was in business school, I was very focused on, going back into finance primarily so that i could have a firm pay for my business school debt so like Mm -hmm. i you know that was like what i want like that was my goal and like you know the nice thing about finance is like those firms have a lot of money and like (laughs) they'll pay for your business school debt and so like that's great and so i was very very focused on that and i also like i liked intellectually i liked my, my job. Like I thought it was very interesting and I enjoyed it. And so when I was at business school, I took other than like the one forced operations class, (laughs) I I didn't take any operations classes. There was, you know, search fund or entrepreneurship through acquisition classes. I didn't take any of those. So, you know, when I talk to people in business school now who are in those classes or who are talking to me, I'm like, you know, you're ahead of the game. Like I, I was,
0: what I, was, what I, what I, I, what I think about the,
2: about that
0: but what I think about it Trish though is that like when you talk about how you it took you a year and you were noodling around on this and and what in our previous conversation you talk about how like you it was just forming this opinion then uh, and maybe you were getting to this but you had this use case I'm like oh now there's a practical thing in front of us. I think that your approach makes way more sense sometimes. Like when you said that people come out with these grand plans, the that example you gave, you know, many times I have people that'll reach out because of the podcast and be Like, I have this grand plan, billion dollar, you know, holding company. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. have you, how have you started? Well, with more, right. uh, more, more thoughts and ideas. So it's like, well, how are you going to execute that? So I don't know, take it for what it is, but I think your approach is probably more practical. And what you've been doing is I think proof <laughs> it's working.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I think it's for us, like every step along the way, it's just been like, our attitude is sort of like, take action, test something out, if it doesn't work, pivot, move, you know, like a very kind of like quick iteration. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've never really been like grand strategy type people, like, you know, and and frankly, like, once we figure out like, pretty basic big picture, like we want to own businesses for the long term that generate cash flow. And have a portfolio of those things like once you figure out that thesis like it like i don't need to spend any time thinking about it like it's it just is there you know <laughs> there, like, there, there you it. go
0: and the end of the story <laughs> yeah
1: yeah so, so where,
0: where, where were you guys when you like all of a sudden it of become real because of the choice in front of you
1: yeah so we we, we said like hey this is what we're going to do in september of 2014 but we are all still working and then we started And there were three of us, so you know that that's very important to to emphasize. And we started basically reaching out to to brokers to talk about businesses for sale. And based, you know, from you know, Palmer happened to be living with us, like we were all living together at the time. So, you know, get home from work, talk about some listings, stuff like that. Um, We did visits to you know companies on the weekends, and you know covert calls in, uh, corporate, you know, meeting rooms, uh, pretending they're, you know, real work when they weren't. So sorry, (laughs) old if you're listening to this Uh, and when we had a deal, which was the first company we bought, which is a a property, uh, like a landscape maintenance and snow removal company up in Maine, as that became more real, well, we all kind of slowly rolled off of our jobs. I was the last one to leave and when that opportunity became like, okay, this is real. And even if this falls apart, this is still something we're going to do. So, like, that was when we were like 100% committed. And I also felt like I liked the people I worked with. And like, I felt like I was lying to them because they'd be like,
2: mm-hmm. oh,
1: like, how was your weekend? And I'd be like, man, like, it was fine. But like, in reality, like, I'd rushed out of work on Friday, like, got, like, taken up flight to I don't know Kentucky, met with an owner all day on, you know, Saturday and then like gone come home on Sunday. But I can tell them any of that. So I just would be like pretend Man. I did literally nothing like every weekend, you know? And so when I felt like I was lying, I was like, this just isn't sitting well. And you know what they were all very, very supportive and it was it was it was really nice. Um and so we sold our house in Connecticut. We moved up to Maine uh, actually before the deal closed which was a little bit of a risk but we were like well you know this is what we're doing and we're committed to it and um if this doesn't work out then we'll figure out the next thing so we took well, definitely a risk there
0: and you what well, you bunked up with some family from what i remember
1: uh yes so we we <laughs> ended up moving in with the in-laws yeah so was that,
0: say, i have that, to that i have, have to say in that.
1: That was the interim period. That was
0: a little awkward. Uh, well, yeah. I, I think it's important. I think it's important for everybody to note because it's like. There's you, you went to business school, you're in high finance, and then you still have to take a couple steps back to leap forward. And it's just so important. And so like, as you guys are thinking about this, this first business, Trish, and maybe wherever you want to take this as far as, cause I, I think going into like your guys' approach and what you've been doing, but then also how did you set it up and what was your guys' plan to set it up from the beginning? And why did you choose the structure and approach that you did?
1: Well, I'll tell you first thing, when we set it up, we didn't have an approach, much thought around it when we our first deal was just like talk to a lawyer set up an LLC and like that was it you know and so um
0: just use an SBA SBA loan or something
1: we did not actually our first deal was the sellers initially ruled some equity and they provided seller financing so we didn't have any external debt in our first deal, which was very, very helpful. Um, and it also was, um, I just made things easier for us, especially since like, I don't know, we were kind of like a weird group of people asking for a loan and I'm not actually even American, I'm Canadian. So there's that ad complication with the SBA, things like that. So (laughs) that made things, um, easier. Um, and so it wasn't until I forget, um, we had a couple of deals and we always had this vision of a, sort of a holding company. And it's kind of almost hard to articulate, but a, a what, holding company. I was,
0: you can, oh, yeah. one, I was gonna say, why don't you just start from the top of how it's structured right now and then we can go, go come back? Yeah. Cause I think it would be interesting and, and um, bring me back there if I forget, but how you guys started your first few deals. Cause I think even like even people that own companies right now or people that are looking, know How to even get started? What size company? The different kind of choices that they have that they don't know how to navigate through. But why don't you start from where you're at now and then how you kind of landed on that?
1: Yeah, so where we're at now is we we have Chenmark Holdings, which is a C-corp, and it owns 100% of all of our subsidiaries, which are LLCs. And the reason that we set it up that way is because we care like our, 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 our highest priority is long-term compounding of capital. And so we wanted a structure where any profit, that capital essentially stays in the company and that we had the flexibility to transfer cash from one entity to another or back up and um to the to the holding company because our whole model is let's say we have one company i'll just make up numbers so let's say we have a company that made a million and a half of profit at the end of the day and they really only need five hundred thousand dollars of it for like the needs growth in the company working Mm -hmm. capital needs whatever so they have an extra million dollars now if we were just like a normal, like single proprietor, you know, person, we just distribute the million dollars to ourselves and like buy a boat and like do whatever it is. <laughs> we'll do a million dollars, but they distribute it to themselves.
0: So wait, wait, that's not company interest when you take out the money and buy a boat? It,
1: it, that, is, that is not. Um, <laughs> but for us, what we want is that million dollars to come back up to our holding company. And then we use that million dollars to buy a different company. Um, Or to maybe invest Mm -hmm. in a growth opportunity in a different company or something like that. Because a lot of the companies that we buy, they might not have use for a million dollars of of growth or investment opportunity internally. And there are a lot Mm -hmm. of businesses out there like that. Nothing wrong with that. We just have created a structure where we have another, um, like a a better use for that capital. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so... We're focused on taking out as little as possible because in a C-Corp, you're double taxed. You're taxed on like the profits of the business and then you're taxed for like personally as well. So like Mm -hmm. most investors who are interested in yield or like, you know, want to make sure they're like getting capital out as much as possible um, would be very strongly against the C-Corp. because For those people, it's not tax efficient for us because. Um, we are looking to deploy that capital and other investments under the Chenmark umbrella, it is very tax efficient. Um, And so for, and it also allows us to have, you know, you can do this in other ways, but common ownership across everything Mm -hmm. Um, we can sell. We can have shares that employees can buy. Um, There's also like a weird tax code of section 1202, which, um, it provides uh some tax benefits if you were to ever sell your um shares on capital gains and stuff like that so there's some tax benefits that are specific to what we do um not that i'm giving tax advice to
0: <laughs> hey this, is, this the, the, people have been listening long enough where i'm i, I get myself into <laughs> the, the legal and the tax world without with full disclosures that i'm not any of exactly. those but exactly but, Trish, uh, right, um, so, so specifically uh, on the on the structure like in like Maybe because I I think it's so so interesting what you're doing is how are you using what you just described for the C Corp and the shares and how that capital flows back and forth when you're buying the businesses and how that kind of allows you flexibility with role like different equity uh, chunks for different sellers that are selling. And so how do you use the mechanisms you just described to get deals done and to get everybody aligned?
1: Yeah. So usually, so we're buying businesses from owners who want to retire. So they want cash; they don't want equity in our business or anything like that, so they want cash and so what we're doing is let's say you owe you know Ryan's plumbing supply company and we want to buy your business and you know, we'll essentially, let's say it's a $4 million purchase price. We'll use 2 million of our equity. We'll get $2 million of debt. We'll pay you about $4 million. Um, And then it's basically you sail off into the, into the sunset. The equity stuff matters a bit more for the people we're recruiting to work at our company because they have the opportunity to use their bonuses to buy equity in our business. So we feel strongly that over time, we really want, you know, uh, broad-based ownership of all of our top employees in Chenmark holding stock. And so this structure allows us to do that.
0: Awesome. And and I want to that that's super helpful, Trish. And I think to contrast that against like your your everything you just described for the listeners, contrasting that against a normal private equity firm where they go raise the funds from mm-hmm. investors that are have a specific yield that they need with a date that they want the money back with. And then there's this entire, you know, steamroll ahead of like, Hey, buy companies, sell them to liquidate, to get back. You guys have no obligation to do that because of the setup you just described.
1: Correct. So yeah, that's super important. We have no end date. You know, we're not a fund. We don't have external investors. You know, we have no need to sell. So the way we're set up allows for long-term ownership You know, we could own all of our companies for the next hundred years and hopefully we do. That would be awesome. But there's no end date and there's also no external, you know, board or, you know, investment sort of mandate or something that's telling us either like you have to invest in this type of company or you have to sell that company or whatever, you know. James Palmer and I are the quote unquote investment committee. Um, We're also the like HR committee and audit (laughs) committee and the recruiting committee, you know, we're like, um, but we have, we have autonomy. So, you know, for us, that's important because I think we have a pretty clear vision of what we're trying to build. And I think that, most sort of traditional investors probably don't share that vision. And so they wouldn't be like good partners for us.
0: And and for the listeners, I'll, I'll put links in. So Sonny Vanderbeck and Brent Bishore, and there's some other people, Permanent Equity and uh, Satori, they're they're more in the traditional private equity kind of setup. But there's some other people that are kind of doing what you're doing, which I think is so fascinating. It's kind of ties into this conscious capitalism theme that I'm always uh, preaching about. And what I, I want to go like – I want to hear, well, first a couple questions, like how many companies do you guys currently own now?
1: So we currently own nine companies with name brands and CEOs, and we've done over 30 acquisitions because some of those are companies that acquire other companies.
0: Got it. And so, I mean, just for the listeners that had let that sink in since 2015, I mean, like you guys have been doing that much, which obviously there's success in the, in the strategies that you guys are deploying. Now I want to go to Trish, like if, if you're talking to an owner, and, and like we talk a lot about in the intentional growth principles, there's principle three, which is the exit options. And there's, um, we talk about private equity, which is number four, and we got a bunch of material that we unpacked that, but then we explain how so many different flavors of that, like the family offices, your setup versus the traditional setup. So if an, an owner's sitting there going, who am I gonna sell to because I'm legacy driven or I've got different needs and wants, like what are the personal desires And the 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 things where it's a good fit for you guys, and where is it not a good fit for you guys?
1: Yeah. So we. This is super important because I think a lot of you know business owners they're going to be the most successful in their sale if they first define what success looks like to them. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which I'm sure you know, and you know, if it's all about getting out as quickly as possible with the top dollar, you know honestly, we're probably not the right fit. And we say that up front, you know, if, if, you know, you're in that situation, you're probably best off selling to a competitor who will probably pay a a big multiple, probably get rid of your name brand, probably get rid of a bunch of your staff, and we'll probably be able to close very, very quickly. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there is nothing wrong with that option. You know, that's just, you know, if you're thinking about your hierarchy of needs and those things are the highest, you know, there's a certain type of buyer out there that would be a good fit for you. We have worked the best with owners who could sell to a competitor, but don't really don't want to because they care about their business. They, um, in a way that I'm not saying that other people don't care about their business, but in a different way, they, they, They really it's important to them that their employees have a long term home for some of them. It's important the name brand stays because they feel a lot of pride in the name brand and that, you know, the company continues to play like the same role in the community that it has played in in the past. And so and that they're with people that they feel like will take care of their company for the long term, who aren't just going to like sell it again in a couple of years or, you know, are going to operate it well, and, and they want to see their company continue as a going concern and, and grow and all that sort of stuff. And that's where we, I think, are the right fit because that's what we're looking to do. And, you know, we, it, like, oh, let me, we talk I, I, about just like, preserving legacies is kind of how we talk about it. We're We're trying mm-hmm. to have things, you know, carry on the work that the owner, mm-hmm. you know, started.
0: What I think is so interesting, Trish, because like when we like when people go through our training, you know, they talk about their first principle drivers, like what they want, all the things you talked about. Then there's the second principle, the financial targets. And then it's like these exit options and how to match all these things together. What's a fascinating combination that you guys offer is all the money up front or whatever. Maybe there's some seller financing or whatever it is, but there's a there's a liquidation event where people are retiring. Like that was your purpose, right? Where so many of these other things that get to this point where it's like, hey, I want my legacy. I want my community. And I care about all these things, but I also don't want to stick around for a lot longer. And so it's like you're right. having this kind of combination that it's not, not necessarily always a, a, the availability because you can get all your money up front to it with a competitor, but you just mentioned all the, the downside. So like you could do an ESOP, but then you got to stick around or have a management team. And, you know, it's so like there's all these different things where you kind of, provide, that's why I said that it's very interesting. I was interested to have you on the show because you've threaded the needle in a different fashion that can accomplish different goals that people normally wouldn't be able to. So like, when you, how are you finding these conversations? Where are people like, what, how are these, maybe a podcast would be my, probably some of my guesses, but like, where do these conversations start? Like, how do you find people?
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So we do podcasts, but it actually, we, that ends up being more of a channel for people who want to work with us to be in our like leadership development program. People who are mm-hmm. interested in running a small business themselves. Um, so that's really what podcasts have done for us. We haven't really seen that as a really a way to connect. We always say that a lot of small business owners are like too busy to like listen to podcasts regularly. Maybe I they, hope maybe not.
2: Listen to maybe they
1: listen to yours, but <laughs> not, uh, not the ones that we've been on. Um, and uh, they probably listen to yours because yours is very targeted.
0: Um, <laughs> I'm not ripping uh, off tax codes here for yeah, the most part. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Um, but you know, at first it was brokers, which we still do maintain relationships with business brokers. Some of them, you know, are not high value add, and some of them are great. And I think that now they know, you know, the ones that we can have connected with kind of know who we are and and um, will often kind of call us when they have a company that's like about to come to market, um, which which can be very helpful. We do some sort of out, cold outreach, but very um, personalized and targeted. We don't like mass spam people or anything like that. It's more with people who are in an industry that we're in, um, that we just kind of want to connect with, anyways, and also just make sure they're like aware of us as an option if they mm-hmm. and when they want to sell. So that's the second category, and the third is that you know just inbound and relation and 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 industry relationships. So you know you'll you'll go to. I don't know, like an industry day, because you're in that like landscaping. You go to an industry day, you know the other owners, they know you, you know, Mm -hmm. their their employees know each other. And then, you know, one of them reaches out and um, you know, talks to you at some point. So Mm -hmm. we have found that especially since we're like trying to be very long term or focused, you know, we're more about like making a relationship with somebody and connecting with them and staying in touch and just being like, hey, like you know, you might want to sell 10 years from now, but I hope that when you do want to sell, you'll think about calling us and that you would like mm-hmm. consider us to at least be part of the conversation. And, you know, we haven't been around for, you know, that long, mm-hmm. but we've already found that that approach, you know, you know, we might get a call out of the blue from somebody we talked to three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just been kind of, you know, following us because it's like, you know, like it's when somebody decides it's the right time to sell is like a highly personalized decision. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could catch somebody when they're interested and and maybe not.
0: And Mm -hmm.
1: for us, it's just making sure people know that we are one of many options Mm -hmm. if and when they want to go down that
0: path. That's awesome. So I want to go back to like your and your partner's thoughts about what good deals look like and then how you're structuring that snowball. And so I'm trying to think of how to, the best to ask this is in, and, and well, and even I'm going to take a step back, why this is applicable to someone that wants to buy a business and maybe someone wants to get into like, you know, doing what you're doing to some degree. Cause I think more people around our age that are doing this, it's a different option for people that are retiring. Cause there's not enough sell. There's not enough buyers out there. I mean, that's going to be a problem somewhere down the road, but, um, my, uh, I think it's also relevant Trish for people that own companies that are in their fifties or what you shit. I don't even care. Thirties, forties, fifties, or sixties, yeah. where it's like you sell your business right now and all of a sudden you got five, 10 million bucks or whatever it is, where are you going to put that money? So like, there's a, yeah. there's a strong investment thesis to say, instead of selling your asset, build up the infrastructure and then do what you're doing and have your current company be your platform company. <laughs> so with all that kind of context, like, I, I'm gonna yeah. cure how how like how did you start the snowball? I've got this picture of like when I've heard of other people where you're taking one snowflake at a time and you're trying to mash it together and it's gonna take an eon, you know, eons to get that. But you guys have made some serious success over the last five, six years. So like what does a good deal look like from like the cash flow and like this the type of operations to to keep the yeah. snowball going?
1: So I'd say, I mean, first of all, as you know, it's an art, not a science. Um <laughs> And, you know, just kind of basics, you know, we look for companies with at least um, a million of EBITDA, like one to three million of EBITDA. That can mean a lot of different things in terms of revenue, but I'd say anywhere from two to, I don't know, 15 to 15. 20.
0: Of revenue. Yeah, yeah, right. Yep. Something
1: that we would look at. And uh, so...
0: How did, you get, how, did you, how did you get the first person to take that much of a seller's note and roll equity? Because like I think that's where, like, how I do you don't get started? Even
2: know. <laughs> I, I don't, have, you, I don't I even don't know.
0: know. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it,
1: it was, I, you know, like, I had a lot of conversations and...
0: Trust, I'm uh, assuming?
1: A uh, trust, and they also wanted to sell, you know, and it, it just kind of worked out, I, you know. I, I've that's heard of awesome. people who have done deals with, like, 90 percent seller notes you, like uh, you know like crazy like we've never i've floated it a couple times and have <laughs> run into a wall um rightfully so in my opinion
0: but like you know
1: i don't know we just it's the it's, 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 it's what worked um so um then we look for businesses that have so it's like very hot to talk about like you know recurring you know contracted revenue like yeah that's nice and everybody wants like the perfect business or, of course right um, Yeah we we look for things that what we call like reoccurring revenue so it's more like can we get comfortable with the durability of demand mm. So like an example of that would be like a tourism business that is you know doesn't have contracted revenue but is in a location where like for the past hundred years, people have come to that location because like whatever it's on the water and it gets hot and people go there and this (laughs) provides a service to those people. So it's it's very, very consistent. And Mm -hmm. so um, no, it's not contracted, but we can get comfortable with that. Like the food manufacturing business we have, it's not contracted, but they serve grocery stores and it's, very very predictable grocery stores place po's for uh makes bread products bread products every single week and we know who the competitors are and we know what they can do and what we can do and it just is what it is
0: and people eat lots of bread
1: <laughs> and people eat lots of bread
0: exactly <laughs> well and that, so on that question there Tr- trish is like when you've said boring businesses and cash businesses maybe to, to expand on that a little bit more because you just kind of touched on yeah. quite a few different industries yeah
1: so to us it's like the sort of business i feel like the sort of business where if you went to, like, a cocktail party, people would be, like, not that interested in talking to you <laughs> if you told them, like, what business you ran. I feel like that's, like, a good litmus test to the types of businesses we would be interested in. Um,
0: oh, it's not the case, man. That, <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, I,
0: I, I got to I gotta, I gotta tell you just a hilarious story, Trish. So one of my best friends he uh he bought his family business rental business and uh a porty potty business and tent business so he okay, was a yeah. managing managing or he was his uh partner well, i don't even know what the hell his title was he was about a big cpa firm so now he's wearing carhartt boots and all this stuff and he's got all these porter potties we we're golfing years ago and he, we, were, we were driving the golf cart past his one of his porter pies he, he says smell that <laughs> you know what he says next right yeah. <laughs> smells like money (laughs) and like like, yeah it's like i'm the porter potty guy and like oh my god it's a very good business but no no one's excited to talk about it
1: (laughs) exactly we can get like a pretty good sense because like you know people like i don't know be like oh like you know another example would be like oh like the the drop off like i've got little kids so like the mom drop off it's like oh what do you do and i was like i don't know i work at a landscaping company and they're like super (laughs) disinterested in talking to me after that so like you know to us it's just like you could call them nor- boring but you just like normal like normal businesses like that you see every day that are just like part of the economy that are easy to like forget that they're there so like obviously landscaping snow removal food manufacturing some tourism businesses we think are interesting you know it, it, but it's it's businesses like i don't even know exist yet right cuz they're just awesome? so like hidden in the economy. So like, you know, HVAC businesses, plumbing,
0: lawn care. I mean, you, you just lawn you care,
1: elevator services, conveyor <laughs> services, like all these sorts of random things we've looked at, you know, can all can all be interesting. And and I think what's also, you know, we are not like operational experts. And you know, like we're like we have no business owning like a, I don't know, an aerospace manufacturing company, right? Like that requires like some highly specialized skill to run that sort of business for the businesses we look at you clearly need to have a team that has like a core competency in like whatever like that business is doing but i think that in those areas the businesses that do well have like very people who are very very good general managers mm-hmm. who kind of understand like the basics of marketing the basics of finance like how do you collect money how do you Built, you know how do you it, like <laughs> pay build, your bills your bills <laughs> how do you make sure customers get called back within 24 hours like how do you have an online presence like all these things that are not you know we're not google we're not some fancy tech firm like but all of those basic building blocks require just sort of like a general management 101 skill set and those are the types of businesses that work well, like the best for us, and where we think we can, we can,
0: you know, would be the best kind of owners for those types of businesses. So I love it. And, I love it, Trish. Yeah.
1: If it sounds a little vague or. Like,
0: no, it's not. It's because like, oh, it, it is. Well, in like, well, let's make it a little less vague. Cause like, I want you to, I want you to comment on my comment because there's, I don't know if there's going to be a question here. <laughs> so yeah. bear with me. So is, Like, when I think about, like, the exposure that I have, Trish, in these different markets, and I see a lot of numbers and a lot of cash flow, and it's, like, all of this bullshit hype about people raising money and then burning through cash with no intentions of ever making money on some idea that is kind of okay. And I'm just, like, we just praise this shit, and, like, there's a spot for it. But it's not a hundred percent of the marketplace, right? So like I get so frustrated with it's disproportionately showing in like all the tech stuff, which is great. I have no issue with it whatsoever. But it's like the rest of the world needs cash flow to pay their mortgage, to like, you know, buy stuff. I mean, it's just like, and it's the things that actually make money. So it's like there's this realization I've noticed that like. These, you know, the investment companies, private equity, and whatever people that are institutional investors are going, um, shit, we can't keep doing moonshots. We need cash flow. So, like, I think that there's a sexiness in the cash flow that is starting to creep up that is now less like it's less of these boring business. I don't know if you're seeing similar yeah. things or,
1: well, first of all, I mean, I agree. Like, obviously, there is a, there is space for investing in ideas that are, have not yet Mm -hmm. been proven, but that doesn't mean that every startup who has a big idea is a good investment, you know, (laughs) and like, and we, I don't, we kind of think about ourselves as basically like the opposite of venture capital. Like we pay modest valuations for companies that have steady cash flow and probably are not going to grow a lot. Uh, Like they're going to grow a little bit, but they're not, High growth companies, and that's like a real market, and frankly, is like a really important part of the economy. That I think mm-hmm. because it's not, you know, nobody wants to like read like the New York Times article about like you know septic pumpers, <laughs> you know, midsize snow removal company grows three percent year on year. Like that's like not that interesting, right? Um and I, I do think that there is more like interest in cash flow. I still don't think it's any work, like, you know, I still I, I still think that there will probably be like a reckoning with a lot of mm-hmm. these venture capital investments where people will realize like a lot of the assumptions they made about sort of future profitability don't pan out. I think people, some people like probably lose a lot of money. And I think when that kind of like plays out a little bit, there will be maybe like a a, a more of like a shift. You think so?
0: Well, you think so? I mean, like I I was actually just having this conversation with my dad and it's like Planet Fitness is a seven and a half billion dollar valuation. They're doing a few hundred million in revenue and their debt to equity ratio is negative 250. I'm like what the hell like you go in there and you <laughs> lift you, you move around some iron it's not a code or it's just there's yep. no not a lot of places making money swing back to I digress I'll swing back to your your strategy. And I'm curious. I will on just I,
1: that I'll just, I'll just interrupt you though. If anybody yeah, listening yeah. To, wants to value Chenmark like that and give us like an all cash offer, like you should call me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, wait, wait, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Church, we don't value cash flow. We just want yeah. really, really yeah. cool ideas and logos that That's are exactly. shit. Yeah, no. <laughs> exactly. It's so absurd. It's so, so ridiculous. Hey, I want to co- go, I want to think, I want to hear more about your snowball philosophy because you mentioned a little bit. And I think a lot of people don't have the, uh, the visibility in their financials and plug here, they should go take our intentional growth financial assessment so they can see this, but the, the, the ability to, to, how do you assess how much cash you can then pull up to the holding company and how that compounds? Like, so like when you're looking at your portfolio companies, how do you see the visibility into like working, you know, working capital on each of these and then what's going to be available to continue down the road?
1: Yeah. So there's like the actual working capital needs of the business, which, you know, are you can kind of feel feel out, you know, at, at at any given time and kind of, you know, look at your AR and your AP and kind of be able to match that up and know kind of what the amount of like what we call like, quote unquote, like dead capital. That's just like in the business at any given time, because mm-hmm. if it's not there, then like you know, if one payment doesn't come in right on time, you're going to like not have the funds to cover payroll or yep. whatever. Um, and so that like anybody who's been operating their business for a while is going to kind of know that, that number, then there's like what I, and and some of our businesses, I think are pretty good at knowing like exactly what that number is. Let's say it's $200,000 and they mm-hmm. have a million dollars of cash in the bank. They're like, I'll send them back $800,000. And like, I know that like, my lowest point, like I might be down to like 10 grand in the bank account, but like, I'm fine with that. Like they know it very, very well. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say other companies have like working capital that's at a certain level. And then they have like another layer of what I'd call like emotional capital that (laughs) is like there just to make them feel safe. Just in case something happens, you know, and like they don't really need it, but like they like it and they like seeing it in the bank account. And like, mm-hmm. you know what? Like, I, I nothing it. wrong with that. Like, right. yeah, sleep at night, and like, you know. So you just want to make sure that number is not so big that it's, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know. So let's say we have a million dollars of cash in the bank. Two hundred thousand dollars you actually need for working capital. You need three hundred thousand dollars for your emotional capital needs. So then you send five hundred thousand dollars back. Mm-hmm. And for us, you know, our job as the like owners is to make sure that we have places to put that capital. Um, and so we have, you know, we're you know all of our companies are always looking at their own growth opportunities, their own potential tuck-in acquisitions, and then new platform acquisitions. And so the, it doesn't really work if you don't have somebody in your organization that's thinking about. OK, well, now we have this extra capital. What is a good investment for this? I mm-hmm. think a lot of small business or like individual small business owners kind of do this intuitively when they end up investing in commercial real estate. Ah, they use the money yep. from their company to buy their real estate or their business or, you know, rental units or whatever. And I think they're kind of in a way doing using the same thought process that we're do, using. Um
0: but you're just, more, you're, you're just at a, you're multiple steps above that. And like, and you just hit on just a huge point, Trish, that I want to highlight because the, like when people buy their building it like it literally hits them in front of the face once a month, like, Oh, another $20,000 rent yeah. payment. Oh, another $25,000 rent payment. Maybe I should own the building. And so then it's like, do I have yeah. enough cash? And so like. They, they. Uh, so many people stumble into that, and the amount of times I see people where their building is actually worth way more than the real than the business at the end. Like, I know significant- it's
1: unfortunate when we see
0: that. Well, yeah, it's good sure. for the old,
1: but it's also like, listen, man, like your business makes. There was like one business in in downtown Vancouver, which is where I'm from. We didn't look at buying it, but it was a, like a breakfast restaurant. Mm-hmm. But they owned like this big piece of land right downtown, and. uh, like I think the land sold for like fifty million dollars, you know, like it was incredible. But like, you know, the, the 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 diner is no longer there.
0: Yeah, the diner was making like five hundred fifty thousand dollars, and yeah. two hundred grand was in cash, and like, exactly. yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: But I think going back to what you were saying is like, and this is where like I, I, we at our Kona and with the podcast have been. I've learned an immense amount over the handful of years doing this. That like what you just just said really differentiates the tradespeople and their craft of owning a company, which by the way, like we were copiers. Like we knew our the, the copier in the IT space really well, 115 employees. I mean, that's a, that's a decent size, like middle market company, but that's all we knew. We didn't know how to deploy capital to make it continue to grow. That's why we gave it to yeah. the commercial real estate or a wealth manager. But what you're doing is you're seeing like, if we wanted to deploy $2 million, what is the spectrum we can deploy that in like how how do you guys go through that process like how do you divide and conquer those duties of running the companies looking where to deploy it and
1: yeah so so a lot of this falls right now onto my husband james so really like usually the we think of it in a couple different tiers so usually like the The highest return will will usually be in the company itself. So, whatever construction company wants to buy a new skid steer to replace an old one, it's going to cost some money, but it's going to allow you to be more efficient and less downtime, or maybe have an extra crew out or whatever. And so, those are always the top priority. Um, and all of our people will know if like they're going to you you know invest in capex or. You know any of that sort of stuff. Like we are going to be asking about like the return associated with that
0: investment. Okay. Can and, I, uh, clarifying question on Trish is yeah. like, so do you in each of your like of the nine companies right now, nine, nine different segments or industries? I don't know what they're spreaded. Do you like look at like how do you reverse back into this? Is it like market opportunity and then like what where are we at and what kind of growth rate can we expect and what's it going to take to fund that or like how.
1: Honestly, it's a little more casual and informal than that. Um, it's going to be a little bit more like each CEO is really making their own decisions. But like yeah. they know that we're going to they're going to be talking to us about those decisions. And that like in when they're talking about it, they're going to be like, the, you know, this is this is how I'm thinking about the return. And, and honestly, a lot of that is much more back of the envelope than like some formal big like presentation like
0: their and- gut like instinct of like, where could this be? Yep. And what, what do we need? Do we need a tool and dye machine or like five, 15 right. more lawnmowers and a skid loader or and something then, like, like that? How
1: much is that going to cost? Can you yeah. finance it? How quickly are you going to pay it back? Like those, it's going to be a, it's more of like a conversation, okay. not like this big thing. And then, you know, then there's the opportunity for potential tuck ins for an existing business. Those can usually be very attractive because they're usually small local people that want to sell to you usually you can get them for a good price and you can kind of like absorb them into your your business so an example would be lawn care companies some guy in the you know next zip code over has like three tax a couple of you know trucks and wants to retire like yep. you know something small like doing that. probably Here's like
0: 500 grand 600 grand in revenue or yeah. something like that yeah
1: yeah Exactly. And like, you're just basically buying their accounts and hiring their employees and and that's it. And so those are, would probably be the second sort of source or like use of capital. And then the third would be like a whole new and, you know, acquisition. That's like a separate thing. And we, when we're kind of doing our like financy thing of underwriting the, the deals we're looking for deals that have like a 25% cash flow yield so basically like at the end of the day after you've paid everybody who needs to be paid um are you generating at least 25 percent on the cash you put into the business and so that's our threshold for like making a new
0: investment that's awesome so i want to the listeners should bear with us here for a second because i want you that we've, I've been doing a lot of these presentations on the financials. So I've been uh, doing a bunch of Vistage and EO presentations yeah. and talking about how to tie the three financial statements together, which is what that assessment that I shamelessly plugged in earlier is like, but when you look at this three financial statements, where are you finding this and feel free to like go into the specifics? Like, how do you get to what is the free cash flow, the 25%?
1: Yeah. So in our deal models, we're basically saying, okay, revenue our expected expenses any uh, debt payments you know interest in debt payments and those structures uh, taxes just a little bit squishy but just some mm-hmm. sort of estimate um, and then estimated capital expenditures on an annual basis so that number is X uh, and if- x right and then we look at that over our models are 10 years long so we look at that over 10 years then okay. we go back and we look at okay so let's say you're making i'll oh, make something up you're, you'll make a million dollars a year uh of, of cash of cash flow so like at the end of the day
0: mm-hmm. Do you actually look, are, you, are you looking at like cash flow provided by operating activities in the cash flow statement or are you actually going down to well, cash at the end of the month
1: so so this is our deal model. So we're kind of like taking the the cash flow statement and kind of like manipulating it for our like deal purposes.
0: Super, super important. So like, don't, yeah, that is like, yeah. you're taking what you need from it and what you're bringing yes. to the table. And The listener should definitely soak that in because every buyer is going to bring something different to it. So like if they were, if they had you and two other people that they were, that was bidding on their company, that's how right. you're, and other people are going to be doing the same thing.
1: Yes, and well, and some people are going to be looking more at EBITDA, whereas we're looking at cash flow because that's what we care about. Because if you know you have, if you make a million of EBITDA, but you have to spend five hundred thousand dollars in capex every year, that's not mm-hmm. on the income statement. Then like you only have five hundred thousand dollars cash flow, which is different, you know. And so, well,
0: uh, well and, that, and that's, so a, then, that's why that's why I brought up that cash flow provided by operating activities. I mean, like, that's yeah. really, and that's only found in the cash flow statement. And the reason I'm bringing this up, Patricia, and I'm not trying to drag us down a rabbit hole here is that yeah, no, no. Well, I've just been unbelievably shocked. I mean, like, hundreds of people that I presented from right, lately, no one looks at the cash flow statement. I mean, when I say no one, it's like a handful. But, like, like no, oh, that's for, see, that's-, that's for the bankers. That's for the bankers. That's for the accountants. I'm like, how are you running your damn business if you're not looking at it?
1: Yeah. Well, I think that would be pretty accurate of most people. <laughs> in finance too actually interestingly mm-hmm. like a lot of people don't really look i mean i went to business school and like i feel like we were just kind of like oh like i don't know the accountants will look at that one like it wasn't really like something we looked at but then like you know what like once you operated a business for a little while you start to realize like that statement's pretty important especially <laughs> like, if you're
0: running out <laughs>
1: yeah, especially if you're running out of cash, that becomes a very, very important uh, oh. statement. Uh, yeah
0: so <laughs> I know I, I, it's so funny cause it's like, wait a second. I had a positive net positive net income. Why do I have no money? And like people right. just don't yeah. under. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I know I'm, I'm taking up quite a bit of time here. I so when you're thinking about the future and like what you guys want to become, and what you want this part of I mean, you're kind of pioneering and part of the pioneers of this new market. What do you, what do you hope for everything?
1: Well, that's a tough question. Just in that we probably, t- this ties back perfectly, like to the beginning of conversation, like we haven't really been like big, you know, this is where we're going to be like in 20 years kind of people. But you know, I think that we, we see a very, we, a very large market opportunity. And I think that if we can get it right in terms of finding the right people to run these businesses after transition, because that's really what it's all about, is finding the right people, kind of matchmaking them with the right business, and and, and be, having a track record that owners feel comfortable working with us to, to sell their businesses to us, because they, they trust us, I don't think there's really any kind of ceiling on our growth. And so we're investing a lot right now in sort of the the systems and processes and people that we need to manage, you know, much more. So we talk about, you know, 50 companies, 100 companies, like what are the things we need to be doing now in the processes and, and the culture mm-hmm. and the values and all that stuff that we need to have to manage a much larger portfolio. And mm-hmm. so that's something we're always thinking about, setting ourselves up to take like that next step of growth. And it's it's you know it's it's cool to think about how we could do this at at more at, at you know with more scale
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh and that's what are really, big, what are your biggest constraints our biggest constraints well there are going to be two so our biggest constraint is because we don't have external investors the cash flows from our business go to fund the checks so if our companies don't do well then we can't buy more companies and frankly if we had more money, we could buy more businesses because we see so much opportunity out there. But our Mm -hmm. growth is a little bit held back by our ability and how quickly our companies can, you know, can Mm -hmm. generate cash. And so I actually don't mind that sort of limiter on our growth because I think it allows us to make sure that we're ready for the growth when it comes.
0: And discipline, right? I mean, you're. Yeah, uh... exactly.
1: yeah, yeah. We have discipline and we're also, you know, we're kind of we can't grow too quickly to have things kind of fall apart from a process Mm -hmm. standpoint. So I actually, I don't really mind that one. So the next one is just, you know, talented people to run the businesses, people who say like, Hey, I want to be the CEO of a small business. And I want that, um, that role and have that impact. And um, that's been a big focus of ours for the last couple of years. And, you know, thankfully we've, we've had some really, really awesome people come and join us. And um, they're adding just so much value to our, our company. I'm just so thankful for that, that, you know, just hoping to kind of keep that pipeline going um, so that, you know, if we don't have good CEOs to place in our companies, we're not going to buy them. It's just Mm -hmm. not going to happen. And we make sure we tell that to the sellers, you know, up front that if I don't have somebody to run this, I'm not going to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the biggest limiter. You know, we're, you know, we're constantly working on making sure that, you know, that's not a problem, but it's uh yeah. is something that is a constant something that's a constant focus of ours
0: i wouldn't be shocked trish if we circle back in 10 years and those two constraints were one of the one of the bigger components to your guys success because i watch when there's the huge piles of cash people then have to deploy it and then they made terrible decisions on hiring they did make terrible buying decisions on the business and like i wouldn't be surprised if it's just facilitating the discipline to keep the snowball going. I mean, we all know the biggest snowball out there is Buffett and what he did. So
1: it's yep. apparently yeah. worked, right? Yeah. It's <laughs> so all right, funny well, to me. Like, yeah, I got to no,
0: go. go ahead.
2: No, 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 yeah, i uh,
1: go bedtime, but I'll just It is funny to me how there are so many people who are such like disciples of Warren Buffett and like, you know, they love him and are, you know, go to all the annual meetings and read all the books and all this stuff. And then they, like, don't actually do any of the things that he does. (laughs) Like, it's like, what he did, even if you want to replicate it at a super small scale, is not a secret. It's pretty straightforward. He's been very transparent about it. But, like, nobody seems to actually, like, do that, which is, like, very confusing to me. But, like, it's Uh, it's just, I don't know. If you have any answers on that.
0: Well, I, like, it... The, my one comment, and then that's a whole conversation is I, I like he was doing this back in the day when he could look at the financials in an analog world, there wasn't, you know, high frequency trading that had market, you know, pricing immediately. I swear to God, what you're doing, Trish is as close to the new modern version of what he's doing. And the reason that, I mean, he wasn't running the companies like you were, like you are right. Like, so, I mean, there's no, way I more. Think
1: that if, the way I like have read it is that in the early days, he was much, much more involved. After, yeah, no, you're but right. It might seem like he was, especially fan- now.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree. There's a fantastic book that I read called Snowball that was on him. It yeah. was my favorite book on him. But anyways, Solo, we'll get you off and running. So two final questions. Um, one is I want to know what the word intentional means to you because the name of the show and I think it has a, a unique meaning when you combine it with growth. So what does the word intentional mean to you?
1: I think we talk about being successful on purpose instead of by accident. And so I think like intentional is kind of, it means the same thing. It's being, you know, not kind of letting things happen to you, but making, you know, using all the information you can, as well as just your good common sense and judgment to, to make decisions, to get you kind of to wherever you want to go.
0: Love it. That was awesome. Uh, Best place to find you, get in contact with you, learn more.
1: Yeah. So my email is trish at chenmark.com. Also our website, chenmark.com has an info email that uh, is actively monitored. We are not active on Twitter, so probably best not to reach out to us there. (laughs) Um, uh, But really website is websites the best way.
0: Trish, thank you so much for spending the time. I had a blast.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Good luck at your competition.
1: Uh, Thank you.
0: I learned so much about what Trish is doing and how she's structuring it, why people want to sell to her, what their intentions are. And I am just so excited that there are people like her and her partners out there moving and shaking and trying to fill a need in the marketplace that I think a lot of us can relate to. And you know, I, I would say there's a couple of takeaways that I had is one is that if you have a business and you wanted to work yourself out of it and to go buy other businesses, having one platform business, which is your current company, could be a way to do that, to go through a bunch of acquisitions and then figure out a different way to find your liquidation. And once you have a more EBITDA and, a, and a less risky of a cash flow, Situation because of your diversification, you could literally buy a bunch of companies, grow up, and then do an ESOP as a holding company, or you know whatever you wanted to do. There's so many options, but also realizing that there are people like Trish, and then also the people I mentioned in the podcast, like Brent B. Shore from Permanent Equity and Sonny Vanderbeck from Satori Capital. There are people out there and investors out there that get it, and then they understand how how to align the fair market value of a business with the legacy, uh, the legacy desires of a business owner. And if you want to get more clear on what you want and how to view your valuation, your value growth and the exits and how all this stuff works, go check out the Intentional Growth training. And I would highly recommend checking out the Intentional Growth virtual cohort we have coming up. Like I said, it's uh, May 4th is the kickoff date and it's 2000 bucks and it's four calls over four weeks and then you get access to the training and you can hear how everybody else is thinking about what they want long term and how to align their short term goals goals with the long-term value that they want to create. Thank you so much for tuning in and I will see you next week.